up on today's show, it is International Women's Day. We're going to talk about gender justice with Andrea Gunraj, and we're going to talk about women in finance with the great Kelly Keene. And Ukraine has made a desperate plea for warplanes amid the Russian invasion, and there seems to be a lot of hesitation in supplying them. Why? It is International Women's Day today. This year, the Canadian Women's Foundation is shining a spotlight on what they call gender justice. Okay, it encompasses a number of different issues where women are still struggling to find equal footing with men. Important issues. So we're going to talk about that now with Andrea Gunraj, who is the Vice President of Public Engagement for the Canadian Women's Foundation. Andrea, thanks so much for joining us again today. Appreciate your time. Thank you for having me. Um, yeah, okay, so let's just go through here. When we talk about gender justice, to be honest, I had to look it up and find out exactly what we're talking about here, but it actually touches on a, on a few different areas, right? Yeah, that's right. I mean, gender justice is a term that we use because it speaks to more than just equality and even more than just equity. It's talking about all the things that we need to make sure that everybody gets what they need and deserve in this life. So it's fair and livable wages, it's freedom from violence, it's safety, it's affordable housing and childcare, diverse leadership, every opportunity to thrive. It's a big, encompassing idea, and it's better for everybody. That's ultimately what it is. It's not just about women. It's yeah. not just about gender-diverse people to everybody. So let's talk about some of the issues that you're focusing on this year. Uh, wages, and we know that wage gap continues to exist, correct? That's right, um, and certainly it's bad for everybody, but yeah. certainly when we see about women of color and black women, indigenous women, women with disabilities, it's even worse. And there's so many steps that we still need to take to make sure people get paid properly for the work that they do. Um, what do we need to do in that? I mean, we've talked about it for years. I know there's been some policy and some... Uh, what do we need to continue to focus on, Andrea? Well, I think that it's looking at it from a systemic lens. So not just straight up wages, but looking at why people are underpaid or unpaid for the work that they do. And for a lot of people, especially women, there's a big concern that they have around child care, that they're spending uh, their time getting unpaid work, um, and that's taking away the time that they have for paid work. And that's a big part of the pay gap, why women are not paid very well, is because they're being unpaid for the work that they do. So I think there's a structural issue that we have to look at to make sure that people are supported to be able to participate in the labor market. And then there's also structural issues around discrimination that happens in pay. That's still an issue. And certainly we're seeing that people are not able to advance. Women are not able to advance into leadership positions that get better pay. Um, there's also this idea that women are stuck in jobs that are underpaid and undervalued oftentimes. Things like frontline work, service work, retail work. These types of jobs are not well supported, but as we've seen in the pandemic, they're essential. So we have to look at what we value and actually put up the pay. And some of that has to do with making sure that the minimum wage goes up. Mm -hmm. But that also has to do with looking at things like supporting women to be able to be in the paid workforce. That's affordable, free childcare. We're talking about that now, so I have hope. But there's more that we need to do, and we needed to do like 30 years ago, not just today. Yeah, we're definitely playing catch-up. There, there's no doubt about that. And, and like you say, at least we're talking about it, but obviously it's not it's not happening quickly enough. I'm wondering, you know, we, we're at a time of flux here, especially in, in the workforce and the way that we work and all these sorts of things. And I know you're holding an event today to talk about this on International Women's Day in terms of going back to work, returning to the office and all that sort of stuff. It's a really good time to put a focus on this, right? 
That's right. And we're speaking about it when it comes to this idea of corporate citizenship for gender equality. So it's not just for the individual person. It's about people in leadership positions in the corporate sector to be able to think about what are they doing to make sure that the policies and practices and the way they set up work is amenable to women's participation in that work. And it's really about thinking about this moment, not as just a moment of flux, but a time to reset normal in the workplace and make sure that that gender justice that we're looking for can happen in the workplace context and then, of course, beyond. It's a, it, it really does. When you talk about a time of change and great change, and we know things have changed so dramatically, it's really a good time to sort of incorporate things. So many things are going to have to change as we go back to the workplace or whatever the case may be for each individual uh, situation. It's a really good time to sort of say, OK, let's make this part of the discussion in terms of just where we sit and when we're there. Yeah, I think you're so right. I mean, I think that we need to look at this as an opportunity. And really, when we know that women are doing well at work, everybody does well at work. There's so much evidence out there that shows that diversity, inclusion, and justice in the workplace leads to everybody having better work conditions. So it's not just equitable. It's not just a good thing to do. It's also a smart thing to do to make sure that your business is strong going forward in a time of uncertainty. Um, the event that you're holding today, tell us about it and how people can get involved. Yeah, definitely. It's at 1 o'clock EST. Um, you can go to our website, CanadianWomen.org, and click on Make Moves for Gender Justice, and you'll see that you can register right there. And the whole idea, of course, is how is your workplace adapting to hybrid work models, supporting employee caregiving needs, and advancing diversity and inclusion? We're going to talk about all these things. We have some great speakers and more importantly, we want to just start the conversation of how we can work at look at work differently with that idea that we have this chance to do things differently. It's about time. It's more than about time. And now is a great time for us to be thinking about that. So I'm hoping that people will get their thinking hats on and get creative about what we can do. Again, go to CanadianWomen.org. I think you're so right, Andrea, in terms of, you know, it's a great opportunity. And I think hopefully there will be um, business leaders and, and the like that will be looking for some creative thinking, as you say. I think there's a lot of people out there that would be really interested in doing this. Maybe they don't even know how to get started. This could be a good opportunity to learn. Exactly. I mean, I think that it just helps to hear what other people are doing, what other jurisdictions are doing, and it also helps to see some best practices out there. Sometimes we have a hard time seeing it in our own lens. We feel really um, stuck in our own models. So I think this is a great chance for us to see what others are doing and what are those best and promising practices out there. Well, best of luck with the event, Andrea, and thank you so much for joining us today. Really appreciate your time. Thanks for having me, and happy IWD. Yeah, you too. That is Andrea Gunraj, who is the Vice President of Public Engagement for the Canadian Women's Foundation. Right now, we're going to focus on International Women's Day and money. And we're going to have a chat with uh, well, one of my favorite guests, Kelly Keene. Uh, you know Kelly. She's a personal finance educator, best-selling author, founder of the Women Claiming Wealth Conference, coming up on April 6th. Kelly, thank you so much for finding me in a few minutes for us today. Always appreciate it. Oh, Shay, always great to be with you. Thanks for having me. Hey, what's this uh, conference you've got going on April 6th? Tell us about that. Yeah, um, it's a new initiative. Uh, first conference I've done. I'm so excited about the speakers that we've got. Um, really, it's about claiming wealth, Shay. Like, I've been talking about people feeling good about money. Yeah. I want women now to stand up and claim their wealth. So I uh, hope that uh, some of your people may check it out and register. Yeah, absolutely. It'd be crazy not to. Um, 
talking about that, it's, it's taking ownership. Women have to take ownership of their financial lives, right? That's what it comes down to? Yeah. <clears throat> well, there's still so much that's unfair, of course. We get that. But, um, and, you know, you had me on last time we were talking about the stats that I, I revealed and, and found in researching my last book for women is that, you know, over 60% of millennial women are deferring to their spouse on matters of money and 41% of female breadwinners. Now, when I wrote that book, I had a picture of my grandmother sitting next to me. She died on my third birthday, so I never really met her. But I, I, I wanted, you know, every word to really be infused with the fact that, you know, for most of her life, she couldn't vote. She could not um, own property in her name. She had to, if her husband said no, it was a no. She had 13 kids. Like, you know, it was a totally different life. And I just find it irks me, Shay, that, yes, there's still so much unfairness, but so many women are not stepping up to the plate. And I just think that money is like oxygen. You cannot let someone else control that supply. Okay. How do we do that? You've got this concept... Tell me about it. A secret bank account? I mean, how realistic are you being with that suggestion? Right. Now, this is something my mom's <laughs> always told me. Um, but, yeah, like, there's there's a number of surveys talking about how many married women actually have hidden bank accounts. And, you know, why do they have these hidden bank accounts? For some of them, it's about survival. They're maybe scared to that they're going to, you know, be in a situation of being divorced or for an emergency. Now, does it have to be a secret? It doesn't have to be a secret, although in some households it might have to be, Shay. That's the reality, right? Like, a lot of women um, are, are, you know, in situations that it, they're, they need the money to get out of that, that relationship. Yep. So um, hard conversation to have. And I think, you know, as women, as we're all paying attention to our finances more, we have to be on the lookout. Well, we all do for these women that are in these situations that they're only stuck there because they don't have the money to get out. Yeah, I think that's a great point. Um, how do you go about setting that up? Okay, secret bank account, like you say, is one thing, but this other um, principle that you talk about, yours, mine, ours, how, how does that work? A lot of conversation, Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, which is really hard because here's the thing, too, is dynamics are so different, right? You might be on a second marriage, a third marriage. You might have cohabitated because the pandemic was expensive and it just kind of made sense to move in and, you know, you just commingled money. And the longer that that's gone on, the harder it is to have the conversation. And sometimes, Shay, like people are 10 years in before they're really having the conversation. And a lot of women are saying that, you know, they felt forced to have a joint bank account that, you know, they they don't have the ability to have their own bank account. So that's a very troubling sign if that's what's going on in your relationship. Um, but it could be as innocent as just like, you know, you both should have your own money. It shouldn't be a parental thing um, and, and figure it out from there, you know, moving from the joint account. But I do get that that is not possible for a lot of sure. situations. But just sort of having this, I mean, see, for me, I'm the exact opposite, Kelly, because like, I don't know anything about money and I'm too lazy <laughs> to learn anything about money. And I've, I've been very fortunate that my wife, like, if you had, to, honest to God, this is how bad it is. If I had to pay the power bill this month, I wouldn't know how to do it. Oh my God. I'm telling you, you the sound, truth, Kelly. You sound like my husband. Very <laughs> smart man. Very smart man, but just couldn't be concerned. I mean, every once in a while, I like quiz my husband. How much life insurance do we have? Yeah. Do we have RSPs, CSSAs? No Where are they? Like, 
this is the thing you've got to, and I mean, we're joking, but it's a reality. And I mean, like if, if all of a sudden one spouse passes away or there's a divorce and you just have no clue where the finances are, where you sit, that's a really awful, awful place to be. So might not be today. Today might not be the day, but get your digital calendar out, make a date with yourself for a day that is convenient and start to dig into your finances. And just starting to learn a bit. And I mean, there's so many different things out there that it can be a little overwhelming. So I I think that's tough. Um, you, you walk people through this, and I'm just wondering, at a time like what you're seeing right now, Kelly, with the, the, the cost of living, and you name it, whatever right. aspect you want, be it your power bill, what the, you're paying for gas, cost of food, uh, you know, markets tanking, interest rates mm-hmm. going, it doesn't matter. It seems like everybody's got a hand in your pocket. What's your one piece of advice for people who are kind of feeling like, good Lord, it's coming from all sides today? Well, and it's bad. Like my my heating bill last month. I thought, what is that? Like a, a a car payment for a Mercedes? Like what is that? It was outrageous. Yeah. Um, you've got to dig in. Like, here's the thing, Shay. I'm not talking about like foregoing the coffee or the lunch out. You need that for your mental health. But let's say you're in high interest rate credit card. You know, you're at eighteen percent. Call your bank. See if you can get in a lower rate product. Even if you're doing nothing else, you're making the same payment. You're going to save big bucks on just getting it into something at, let's say, 10% or 12%. Just, you know, it's hard, but have a look at your finances. If you can't do it yourself, reach out. We've got some great resources in Alberta. There's Money Mentors, a lot of great nonprofit credit counselors. It's a free call to them. Take the free call. Get some help. (laughs) (laughs) The help is there. Don't be scared to ask for it. And, of course, check out Kelly's writings and her books and her conference. Uh, A great, great resource, and I'm I'm thankful that we have access to it. Kelly, thanks so much for your time. You're so kind. Thank you, Shay. Always appreciate the conversation. Yeah, we'll talk to you later. Bye. That's Kelly Keene, who is a personal finance educator and a best-selling author and founder of Women Claiming Wealth Conference on April 6th. Getting back into the situation taking place in Ukraine. Um, This morning, our Prime Minister, uh, this morning, our time, our Prime Minister uh, was there in that part of the world, at least, meeting with other foreign ministers and the head of NATO. So these high-level meetings are continuing, and there's all kinds of discussion about what the next steps might be. One of the big asks out of Ukraine uh, for a number of days now was a plea to the United States to help Kyiv get more warplanes to try and help fight what's going on with Russia and try and maintain control of the airspace. You've heard talk about no-fly zones. Um, it's a non-starter for, for most people who seriously take a look at it from NATO's point of view. Um, and the reasoning, as far as I understand it, is because in order to have a no-fly zone, you must enforce it. And to enforce it, you must engage in combat with Russian planes, which means World War III. So it's a non-starter for most people who've taken a look at this. But is there a way around providing planes to Ukraine so they can enforce it on their own? And that's the discussion at hand. And uh, we're going to get into it now with Dr. David Berkusson, who is a professor of history, director emeritus at the Center of Military Security and Strategic Studies at the University of Calgary. Doctor, thanks so much for your time today. I appreciate you joining us. No problem. Um, let's just go through this. First of all, why the ask for the warplanes from Ukraine? This has become sort of one of their main talking points so far this week. Well, they've got a, they've still got an air force left, but it's a, it's an obsolete air force, and uh, they've got way few, uh, way way smaller air force than the Russians have got. Uh, it's amazing that it's lasted this long, but uh, clearly, the, what the Russians are out for is uh, complete air supremacy. Right. They they don't have it because they don't have 
enough uh, fighter jets or they're not using them properly. And the Ukrainians have got a lot of anti-aircraft missiles. But the, the Ukrainians believe that if they were to get more fighter planes, that uh, they would be able to better protect themselves. Okay, so now Ukraine saying, provide us with fighter planes, and there's a sort of backroads route. Maybe Poland will donate some planes, and the U.S. will give Poland some planes. Why not just have the U.S. give planes directly to Ukraine? Because uh, Russia has made it very clear that that would uh, constitute, as far as they were concerned, that would constitute NATO involving itself in the war. Okay. And we don't know what's going on inside of uh, Putin's head. So uh, will that, would that constitute uh, another step towards a third world war? We don't know. We've got to be very careful about that. And so in, in the meantime, this discussion about, you know, maybe providing them through a third country, essentially you're still doing the same thing, right? I mean, it's an, it would be another uncertain step to take. It is a very uncertain step. Uh, probably nobody knows this anymore, but in, in, uh, it, at the beginning of the Second World War, when the United States was neutral and Canada was at war, this was in September of 1939, uh, American neutrality laws forbade the flying of American aircraft to Canada. And uh, what they did was they, came, they, they had a lot of these airplanes, they flew them to places in uh, North Dakota, Montana, and so on, and they and they hooked them, they brought them across the border behind tractors or horses or whatever, and then they flew them away. Hmm. <laughs> you know, I don't know if that's a viable alternative for what's <laughs> going on there, but it's the closest thing that I could think of from a historical example of what might be done. But then you see, uh, you know, uh, the mad murderer in Moscow might say, well, that constitutes NATO interfering in a war, and I don't care how they get those airplanes. Right. I mean, that's, so that's the problem. That's the issue here. I think when you're talking about anything, I mean, it seems like you're splitting hairs, really. And I, I guess the question is, when you talk about this no-fly zone, we keep, you know, there are still uh, t- today, this morning, politicians in Ukraine demanding that NATO uh, enforce a no-fly zone, you know, help us win this war. Um, that's a non-starter, right? Because we know if you're going to institute a no-fly zone, you must enforce it, and that's World War III, correct? That's yeah, for sure. Well, we, yeah, we, we believe it's World War III, and who the hell wants to take the right. chance? Now, I understand why they keep demanding this, even though they know they're never going to get it, because, you know, at the end of the day, if, if the Ukraine survives as an independent political entity, and I have my doubts that it will, I certainly hope it will, but if it doesn't, uh, or if it does, then they've got voters to think of. And uh, th- their people are pressing them. Why can't we get a no-fly zone? Yeah. Every time we see another one of these of these terrible pictures of, of bodies lying in the streets and somebody being interviewed, he says, I want a no-fly zone. My family has just been killed. Well, you can understand that, and I can understand it. But the larger question is, uh, how far do we want to go with this? And uh, there's danger already of, uh, of of the Russians mistaking and dropping bombs into Poland or whatever. Mm-hmm. These kinds of things have happened before. And uh, this is about, probably as close to a World War III as we're going to get since the Cuban Missile Crisis of the early 1960s. So when we take a look at it, you know, I mean, we, we're not throwing around World War III lightly. Is that why um, it's so... Because, I mean, we know that NATO could respond in different ways and do things, but... Their hands are tied, in a sense, here, in terms of what they can and can't do. They have to, they're going to try and support Ukraine as best they can, but at the same time, they have to be well aware that it could very easily tip into something that nobody wants. Exactly, because a World War III means we all go up in smoke. Right. So the, the question is, how much can you do 
uh, without pushing, uh, you know, the Russian ruler, I won't say his name, uh, the Russian ruler to the point where he says, okay, you've gone too far, and, uh, and, and I, I can't lose this war, uh, I have to save face, push the button. No, that's the problem we're dealing with here, and uh, it's a significantly large problem. When what we're seeing from NATO, as somebody who analyzes this and studies this, what do you think they're attempting to do at this point? Is it matter? Is just containment? Try and and, and keep this contained to the area, and, and hopefully not see it escalate and spread further. Well, that that would be number one priority. Number two priority is to fill the uh, Ukraine with as many weapons as possible, uh, anti-aircraft and uh, and anti-tank weapons primarily. For some reason, the Russians uh, don't seem to be using very many uh, guided munitions. They they drop dumb bombs everywhere, so their their uh, their aircraft are coming in fairly low, and that makes them vulnerable to these uh, shoulder-fired uh, anti-aircraft weapons. Besides the S-300 systems that Ukraine already has, and they're knocking planes out of the air. But you know, the Russian air force is fairly large, and it really depends on how much. Uh, the, the mad mullah, the mad murderer of Moscow is going to send uh, is going to send how much of his air force he's going to send to Ukraine and strip the rest of his country of air defenses. So that's that's a big problem for him. It, it, it's so. Where, how do, where do you see this going? Like honestly, what do you think the the next step is next week, next month, next year? There's no. There's he's going to push this right to the end. So right. what is the end? I mean, he's going to try to occupy all of Ukraine. There's no question about it. And he may succeed in doing that in the long run. But then what? I mean, once your dog catches the car that he or she is chasing, what do they do with it? Because he's got a completely hostile population. Even with all the refugees, there will be at least 40 million people left in Ukraine. They don't want him there. They won't cooperate with him. They won't cooperate with his government. You'll probably have a prolonged guerrilla war of one sort or another. Yeah. And, uh, you know, it is, well, this will be like another Afghanistan for him. Um, and that's just, you know, Ukraine will lose its independence for now, and who knows what will happen when and if this guy is ever off the scene. I, I, just don't see how, I don't see how Ukraine can possibly win this war. It's, it's, it's very sad to say that, but I don't see it. Well, I mean, and that's the other thing. Realistically speaking, if NATO decides or, you know, any of the allies decide that, okay, we can't jump in and basically fight this war on Ukraine's behalf, we can support them. You're talking yeah. about Ukraine fighting against really one of the only military superpowers. Say what you want about Russia in terms of armaments and all the rest. Militarily, yeah. they're still yeah. a superpower. Yes, they are. Uh, now, on the ground, they're not the kind of a superpower that the United States is. Yes. I mean, the United States military is, I believe, about four or five times the size of the Russian military. And I'm talking about tanks and, our, and infantry and artillery and all of that sort of thing. But they certainly are the largest in Europe. And uh, they, uh, you know, they should have rolled over the Ukrainians a long time ago, except what you've got here is uh, this is, you know, this is Hitler invading uh, the UK in 1940. The same thing would have happened if, if the Germans had done that in 1940. As Churchill said, we'll fight him on the landing grounds, we'll fight him in the beaches, we'll fight him in the forests, we'll fight him in the cities, we shall never surrender. And that's the kind of, uh, of, of spirit that's motivating the Ukrainians right now. And that's worth a lot. That's yeah. worth a lot. But at the end of the day, you know, uh, there's no substitute for size. As, they, as we sometimes say, uh, quantity has a quality all of its own. And uh, what you've got with Russia is you've got quantity. Right, yeah. 
Okay. Uh, Dr. Berkerson, thank you so much for your time. I appreciate you joining us. Thank you very much. No problem. That is Dr. David Berkison, who is a professor of history and director emeritus at the Center of Military Security and Strategic Studies at the University of Calgary. Um, yeah, interesting around the planes. And somebody sent a text. Um, I've heard that, you know, they can't fly certain planes. Yeah, absolutely. It depends what the Ukrainian um, pilots are trained on, right? One of the main issues is MiGs, you know, the Russian planes, um, That they can fly those. That's what Poland has. So the planes would go from Poland and be shipped into Ukraine. They can fly those. They're trained on those. Um, and then Poland's Air Force would be backfilled by the United States with F-16s. I don't know. It's all very confusing. And then the other issue, which was raised by our guest, is the fact, okay, fine. How do you get those planes into Ukraine, right? Because we've just said, we made it very clear, and our guest made it very clear, that NATO has said we will not be sending troops of any kind into Ukraine. There will be no boots on the ground. There will be no planes in the air. We are not doing it. Our troops will not enter Ukraine. So, okay, how do you get the planes there? Is it a situation like it was where you park them at the border and push them across? I mean, that's the big discussion that's going right now is, you know, how how would it work if they decide to get the planes into Ukraine? How do you get them there? How do you do it? Because there's that vow that NATO troops will not, will not set foot in Ukraine. Why? World War III. And that discussion, I think, as hard as it is to have, and as frustrating as it is, and as upsetting as it is, there's a lot of military analysts out there saying, you know what, we understand you want the no-fly zone. We understand you want NATO support. We understand you want Europe to jump in on your behalf. We can't. We just cannot do it. Thanks for listening today. To hear any of our other interviews, you can find them wherever you find your favorite podcasts, if you like what you hear, don't forget to rate and review us.